Welcome to The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig, a podcast which endeavors to expose the truth behind legal stories that are distorted by mainstream media. And now, here's your host, passionate truth seeker and veteran attorney, Jill Rosenzweig. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. I'm your host, Jill Rosenzweig. Before I get started today, I just wanted to let you know that I am super sick. I have the flu. I've been sick for about a week now, um, but I really want to get an episode out. So here I am. I'm going to do the best that I can today, but please forgive me if this episode is a little bit lacking. Um, I'm just going to get right to the topic before I keel over. (laughs) So this week I'm going to be talking about Uber releasing the safety report. The report came out yesterday, Thursday, And in the report, it revealed that there were 5,981 reports of sexual assault in 2017 and 2018 by riders of Uber. And so just to be clear, those are just the, the incidents that were reported by the riders. There could be a lot more that have gone unreported. So this is just the sexual assaults that we're aware of. And among those that were reported, 464 of those reports were of rape. And there were also 19 deaths that were caused by physical assault during 2017 and 2018. The report reveals that about 92% of the victims of rape were riders, and about 7% of the victims were the drivers, and about 90% of the victims were female. This report is coming out after Uber went public in May. And at the time that it went public, it warned investors in its IPO paperwork that the report would be coming out and that it may impact the brand. And according to CNN, CNN is basically saying that the reason why Uber released this report is because it was under an extreme amount of pressure to do so. CNN had investigated Uber a couple of years ago and had found that there were a lot of incidents, about 100 different reports that CNN was able to uncover of sexual assault. And part of what came from that investigation was Uber agreeing to conduct its own investigation and release the results. And so CNN is basically saying that Uber should not exactly be applauded for coming forward with this information, and that it was more a matter of Uber being pressured to do so. Uh, CNN is also pointing out that the report is coming out after the company went public and not before, and CNN is essentially saying that they don't think it's a coincidence that Uber waited until after the company went public to reveal this information. Uh, A lot of other media outlets are applauding Uber for coming out with this information and saying that they appreciate how transparent Uber is being about the fact that there is this issue. And so I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not Uber came out with this information from a benevolent standpoint or whether it was being pressured to do so and it kind of just held off on revealing the information for as long as it could. Uh, But in any event, the information is now out there. And the question in my mind, which is really what I want to talk about today, is Uber's liability for the actions of its drivers. And this is a question that's been analyzed before. There was a case a couple years ago where two women sued Uber after being sexually assaulted 
during their Uber rides. And in that case, Uber took the position that the drivers are not employees of Uber. And as a result, Uber cannot be held liable for their actions. And this is something that's been discussed for a long time now. The question as to whether or not people that drive for Uber are considered employees or independent contractors. And this has come up in various different contexts. And it's been subject to a lot of discussion as to whether or not these people are considered independent contractors, and not just within the context of sexual assault, but also in terms of employee benefits. There's been a lot of analysis as to whether or not the drivers are really employees, whereas Uber has been arguing for a long time now that they're independent contractors. And I will just look at this from a California standpoint. There was a case that was decided about a year and a half ago called Dynamax that really changed the analysis in California as to whether or not someone is an independent contractor or an employee. And it made it way harder in California to classify someone as an independent contractor. And this directly affects Uber and Lyft and other ride-sharing applications because it seems pretty clear now, at least in California, that these drivers would be considered employees of these companies. And with respect to other parts of the country where there's more of a traditional analysis as to whether or not someone is an independent contractor or an employee, I've long believed that the Uber drivers of the world would probably be considered employees even under that traditional analysis, which no longer exists in California, but is still the typical analysis in most parts of the country. And that is usually an analysis that looks at various factors to determine how much control the company has over the quote-unquote independent contractor or employee. And so, very simply put, the more control the company has over that worker, the more they will be considered an employee. When it comes down to whether or not the driver is considered independent or an employee, I think most courts would conclude that an Uber driver is an employee. But with respect to California, this is really a non-issue. I think it's pretty clear at this point with respect to the Dynamex decision coming down and since then a law being passed in California, which essentially enacted a law that captures the decision of Dynamex. It's the law's AB5, and it's affected a lot of different industries in California. But with respect to ride-sharing applications, it's pretty clear that the drivers would be considered employees. But just going back to this case that I was talking about, the case involved these two women who were sexually assaulted by Uber drivers, and Uber argued in that case that the drivers were not employees of the company, and this was before Dynamax. So the court in that case was analyzing the law without the benefit of this Dynamax decision having come down. And even so, what the court said in that case was very interesting. So what the court was doing in that case was analyzing a legal theory that an employer can be held vicariously liable for the torts that are committed by an employee when that tort is committed within the scope of the employee's employment. And so what Uber has been trying to argue all this time is that anything that an Uber driver does is 
not something that Uber can be held vicariously liable for because these drivers are not employees. And in the case, the court goes through this whole analysis, which I just mentioned, uh, has to do with the level of control that Uber has over its drivers. And the court concludes that the plaintiffs in that case allege sufficient facts to show that an employment relationship did exist. And the other thing that Uber argued in that case was that if the court did conclude that these drivers are employees of Uber, Uber still can't be held vicariously liable for the acts of these drivers because, quote, sudden sexual assaults by employees are outside the scope of an employee's duties and cannot support employer liability. And so what they're saying is that when you talk about vicarious liability, what you need to show is that the thing that happened was within the scope of the employee's employment. And so what they're saying is that a sexual assault is not within the scope of employment. It's not something that you would expect. And the court said that's not necessarily so under California law. The court says that the analysis asks whether, quote, in the context of the particular enterprise, an employee's conduct is not so unusual or startling that it would seem unfair to include the loss resulting from it among other costs of the employer's business. And the court points out that the question is not whether this type of thing happens frequently. That's not the analysis. What the court says is that it really needs to come down to three policy goals. And the policy goals of holding an employer liable for the actions of its employees come down to preventing future injuries, assuring compensation to victims, and spreading the losses caused by an enterprise equitably. In this case, when the court looked at the foreseeability of sexual assault by an Uber driver and also considered the policy rationales that might weigh in favor of allowing the complaint to move forward, the court concluded that it may be that sexual assault by an Uber driver is not so unusual and startling that it would seem unfair to include the loss resulting from it among other costs of Uber's business. And the court added, and I think this is very important, is that assaults of this nature are exactly why customers would expect companies like Uber to perform background checks of their drivers. The court went on to say that holding Uber liable could also forward the underlying policy goals of vicarious liability, including prevention of future injuries and assurance of compensation to victims. The court says in conclusion, in sum, the court cannot determine, as Uber effectively argues, that as a matter of law, sexual assault by Uber drivers is always outside the scope of employment, if the drivers are in fact ultimately found to be employees. The California Supreme Court has left this question open. Like a police officer who rapes a detained woman, an employee who throws a hammer at a fellow worker in a fit of irritation, or an asylum officer who abuses his role to corner female immigrants and molest them, sexual assault by an Uber driver may be incidental to the operation of its business. And so the court concludes that the plaintiffs could survive a motion to dismiss and had plausibly alleged that the drivers in this case 
were acting within the scope of their employment when they assaulted the plaintiffs. And so one of the things that I want to talk about here is that, first of all, like I said before, I think that there is no longer a question, in California at least, that Uber drivers would be considered employees. And then the question becomes, would Uber be held vicariously liable for the acts of these employees? And I think that when you look at the language in this case, it seems like the answer would be yes. Another argument that was made in this case that I think is interesting is the plaintiffs asserted a cause of action for negligent hiring, supervision, and retention. And essentially what that means is that Uber was negligent in hiring these drivers who were dangerous. And so one of the drivers in this case had a criminal history where he had been accused and convicted of domestic violence. Uh, But that conviction was from 13 years prior. And what came out during the case was that Uber's background check only goes back seven years. So they didn't pick up this prior conviction that happened 13 years before. And the plaintiffs argued that by limiting the background check to seven years, Uber was negligent in hiring this person who was clearly dangerous. And the court concluded that with respect to that driver, the plaintiffs did sufficiently allege that Uber should have known about that driver's criminal history such that Uber could be liable for negligently hiring that driver. Uh, With respect to the other driver, there really was no history to suggest that that driver would commit a sexual assault on a passenger. And so with respect to that driver, the plaintiff's claim of negligent hiring, retention and supervision was dismissed. And so I guess my question is, when it comes to all of these drivers who have sexually assaulted people, and it's coming out in this report, I I would wonder how many of them have a background that would suggest that they may have had a propensity to do such a thing. And that could give rise to a lot of different claims against Uber based upon a negligent hiring, retention, or supervision theory. And I would think that if the backgrounds of these people suggest that they did have a propensity, there would be liability there. And so really my thoughts come down to not just what this report reveals in terms of how dangerous it is to engage in ride sharing, which I've long felt is dangerous, um, but admittedly I've done it. I've, I've taken Uber rides before, but I always ask myself whether or not it's any different than hitchhiking, because really what these reports reveal is that they are not doing fingerprint background checks. The background checks are sporadic. And again, up until recently, it was only one time. It was right when you first applied to be an Uber driver, they would do this background check. Apparently, it didn't go very far back in terms of how many years. It wasn't a fingerprint check. And then once you got in, you were in and they weren't going to revisit it. Now, it seems like they are checking once a year. But even so, during that entire year, so just say you get checked on January 1st, you rape someone on February 1st, you're not being checked again until the following year. For those 11 months, that driver is on the road and there's no intervening 
mechanism to take that driver off the road. That person is allowed to drive Uber and it, it would seem like Uber would not be able to track that. So that's frightening to me. But I guess at the end of the day, my thought is, how do you hold Uber accountable for what has happened to its passengers? And to me, not that a lawsuit will change the reality of what's happened to these victims. It won't. But I do think that going after Uber for the actions of its drivers might be a way of pressuring Uber to either implement much more thorough and comprehensive background checks and ways of monitoring the drivers on an ongoing and and continuous basis. But I also feel like, to be honest, I don't see how there would ever be a way of really knowing who is driving for Uber. And I just don't see how Uber would ever be able to really be on top of that. And at the end of the day, when you get into an Uber ride, you are getting into a car with a complete stranger and you're relying on a company to have vetted this person when it seems like it's pretty clear based upon this report that they haven't really been doing that. So those are my thoughts. I mean, it's really frightening to see these numbers coming out. And you can see even in the way that Uber is addressing their numbers, they're trying to contextualize them by saying that overall, most of the time when people get a ride with Uber, nothing happens to them and 99% of rides, everything is okay. But if you look at it from a different view, it seems like a very high number. And Uber also admits that it doesn't even contact law enforcement unless it's directed by the victim to do so. And Uber said that in only about 37% of sexual assault cases was law enforcement contacted. The other thing that I want to mention is that up until recently, when Uber was settling cases like this with victims... One of the things that they insisted on was that the victim sign a non-disclosure agreement so that they would not reveal to anyone that they were sexually assaulted by an Uber driver. So there was a bit of a cover-up going on. And I also think that if you just look at the way that Uber approached this lawsuit that I'm talking about, you can see that their first priority is not to worry about what happened to the victims, it's to defend themselves against a lawsuit. And so they're trying to take the position that they're not responsible for the actions of the drivers. It's not their fault if someone was raped. So just keep in mind that at the end of the day, this is a business. And when something bad happens, they're looking out for themselves. And so you need to consider that when analyzing whether or not you can rely on Uber to protect you when it comes to the vetting of its drivers. The other thing that I've heard is that Uber is resisting the idea that it should do fingerprint checks of its drivers. And I think, again, this is a way of Uber trying to avoid the possibility that a lot of its drivers are not fit for giving rides to the public. And so these are my thoughts for today. I hope that it wasn't too terribly disjointed. Uh, I'm going to go lie down. <laughs> I'm, I'm crazy sick. Anyway, um, I will talk to you next time. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and uh, I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks so much. Bye.